Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, I chat with Greg Galls. Greg is a professor of international affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. And Greg and I have a pretty lengthy chat. I think it comes in a little over an hour. And Greg does a nice job, I think, laying out the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Middle East in the Middle East and how this relationship has changed throughout the 20th century. Um, we then spend a, li- a good bit of time talking about uh, the, the nature of this relationship as the war on terror has increased and following 9-11. And eventually we get to a point where we talk about how the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration handled issues relating to the Middle East. And then we talk about a new uh, op-ed piece that Greg has where he talks about how the Trump administration has continued some of these policies and how they've changed some of these policies and what are his expectations for how the Trump administration will interact with this region from a foreign policy standpoint. So I think it's a really interesting conversation and timely. Um, And so I hope you enjoy it. And without further delay, here's the conversation I had with Greg. Welcome. Today I'm speaking with Greg Galls. Greg uh, is a professor of international affairs. Uh, He has the John H. Lindsay 44 chair and is the head of the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Welcome, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Greg has published a number of peer-reviewed journal articles in leading international affairs journals. He has a number of edited books uh, and three major books, including his most recent, The International Relations of the Persian Gulf from Cambridge University Press. Additionally, Greg is often sought out by a number of media outlets for his expertise of issues on politics of the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf. One of the fun parts about doing this podcast has been to learn a little bit more about the work done by colleagues and friends. Um, Greg, just in the last year, you've published in Foreign Affairs, LA Times, Washington Post, uh, not to mention the piece that we're going to be discussing today from International, uh, the International Security Studies Forum, H. At H. Diplo. At right. H. Diplo, which I'm still trying to get, uh, and several media appearances. So uh, I must say that this is uh, a lot you have going on, sir. Um, okay, before we get started, as I uh, noted uh, with the conversation with David Bradford, um, Greg is also a personal friend and a colleague, and he works down the hall for me, so I can't claim to be completely objective here, but I think Greg's record speaks for itself, and he's one of the most knowledgeable people I know on the Middle East, um, so I think we'll have a, a few things we can learn from Greg today. So kind of moving to the actual conversation, uh, what I'd like to do, Greg, is for you to maybe give us a little bit of historical context on the U.S. in the Middle East. Um, in my mind, Lots of these issues became much more salient to Americans following the 9-11 attacks. So maybe you could take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about the relationship between America and the Middle East. Um, I know in your article that we'll get to, you trace some of the history all the way back from the Iranian Revolution from 1979. So maybe you could jump in here and give us a 10,000 foot view uh, from there until about 9-11. And then we'll shift to talking a little bit more specifically uh, about how the U.S. has managed the region. Sure. Uh, The 10,000-foot view probably begins not with the U.S. government, but with uh, U.S. missionaries. Uh, 
there really wasn't much American government interaction with the Middle East uh, before World War II, actually. But there were plenty of Americans who were operating in the Middle East. Uh, American missionaries, mostly Presbyterians, founded what are a number of the major educational institutions in the region. Oh, really? Yeah, they founded Robert College in Istanbul, which is now Boazici University, Bosporus University, an English language university, an excellent university in Turkey. They founded the American University in Beirut, which might still be the best university in the Arab world. Uh, uh, you can make an argument there are some competitors, but AUB is really good. American University in Cairo, there were educational institutions in other parts of the Middle East. There were medical missions. Uh, so the missionaries were there basically from the beginning of the 20th century. And of course, the other kinds of missionaries were the oil missionaries. <laughs> sure. right? we, had, we had oil folk out there from the 1920s, basically. And, and American oil companies had established themselves in the Persian Gulf region, in Bahrain, uh, in the 1930s, I want to say, uh, maybe even the 1920s. In Saudi, they, they start in the 1930s. Uh, Gulf Oil uh, was a partner with British Petroleum in Kuwait from the 1930s. So American oil companies have been involved in that part of the world from before World War II. So it was really the missionaries and the oil businessmen and women. Yeah, that, that was basically it. Okay. I mean, you had Americans who would take the grand tour, visit the Holy Land, that kind of thing. Uh, and of course there were American consulates and all to take care of these visitors, but there wasn't a, a real American foreign policy focus on the Middle East. Uh, that really comes with World War II. Okay. Uh, and World War II is the first war fought on oil. Right. If you think about the difference between World War One and World War Two in terms of the technologies involved, what are we thinking about? What What were the military, the technological innovations for warfare between 1918 and 1939? Well, there were. I, I would say there were three: the tank, mm -hmm. the truck, and the airplane. Now, you had all three were used in World War One, but not extensively. And in World War II, they were the backbone of the way you moved armies. Mm -hmm. And what do the what do they all have in common? They run on oil. Yep. And so there was this fear in the United States that, oh my heavens, we're running out of oil. Even though it wasn't true, and America had enough oil to power the Allies through through the war. But there was this new concern with where are we going to get our oil? And that's when the American government started focusing on Saudi Arabia. In the Persian Gulf. So the interest really did sort of begin with oil following World War II. Oh, yeah. I, it was definitely oil driven. Now, another issue comes up right after World War II, and that, of course, is Israel, mm -hmm. which is was the other thing that kind of drew American interest into the region. Uh, because of the Holocaust, there was an enormous amount of sympathy toward the Zionist project of establishing a Jewish state. In, in Palestine. Uh, that was a, a cause that most American Jews hadn't really gotten behind okay. before the Holocaust. Uh, the vast majority of American Jews were in fact, uh, from what we can tell, opposed to the Zionist project. Really? Yeah, because they, what they were worried about was this idea that, well, if you establish a Jewish state, what's gonna happen 
to us here in America. Are Americans going to say, well, you, you should leave, you should go, right? Uh, that was also the case for, for some of the Jewish communities in Europe uh, before Hitler and before Nazism. Uh, in fact, the one Jewish member of the British cabinet during World War I was Sir Edwin Montague. He voted against the Balfour Declaration, which committed Britain to support the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. So it was really the Holocaust that consolidated uh, Jewish opinion in the United States in favor of the establishment of the Jewish state. And both the Republican and the Democratic parties in 1948, uh, in their platform, supported this. It was it was a, a very it was a popular cause. And so, oil strategically, uh, support for Israel, not just among American Jews, but more generally in the United States in the wake of the Holocaust, kind of consolidated this uh, new American foreign policy interest in the region. Add a third factor on there, which is the Cold War. And once the Cold War gets underway, uh, American foreign policymakers basically decide that, that we have to challenge the Soviet Union everywhere. And that includes the Middle East, because we don't want the Soviets to dominate the oil of the region. And so Cold War dynamics also kind of bring the U.S. in uh, to the competition for influence in the region. Wow. So you got ideology playing a role, kind of the ideological battle against communism. You got business interests associated with oil and then a really kind of clear interest in uh, providing a Jewish state following the Holocaust. Yeah. Okay. And so in the in the article, then you pick up maybe in the 1979 in the Iranian Revolution. Can you maybe walk us a little bit from there up until maybe 9-11? Sure. So the Cold War is really the framework up until the end in, in, in the early 1990s. But I think the most important thing that happens in the Middle East uh, in the period between World War II and now is the Iranian Revolution, because that kind of returns Islam to the political sphere in a, in a very direct way. Islam never left. I mean, there were always governments that, that claim that Islam was the basis for their politics, like Saudi Arabia, close American ally. But what the Iranian revolution did was it brought Islam, a populist revolutionary Islam, back into the political sphere in a distinctly anti-American way, right? Because the Iranian revolutionary leadership, Ayatollah Khomeini, identified the United States, close ally of the Shah, close ally of the previous regime, identified the United States as the great Satan, as the big enemy, not just politically, but ideologically, of the revolution. And so political Islam comes in, comes back into politics in a big way, you know, after decades where the, the major kind of anti-American, if you will, ideology was leftist, it was communist, it was socialist, it was... Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt and Arab socialism or the Ba'ath party in the Arab world and Arab socialism. But here Islam comes back in in a distinctly anti-American fashion. And of course we had the hostage crisis, Americans concentrated on Iran for you know, well over a year. Uh, it was one of the major reasons Jimmy Carter's presidency uh, you know, didn't uh, isn't considered a great success and why Carter lost to Reagan in 1980. 
So the Iranian Revolution really kind of, of, of redrew the political map. Iran went from being an ally to an adversary. Islam as a political force went from being kind of with the United States against the godless communists in the sure. Cold War, right? To being right a, a, an ideological basis for anti-American stance. So what else is going on at this time? Well, in the 1970s, we have the oil revolution. And the 1973 oil embargo by Arab states like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, allies of the U.S., uh, against the U.S. because of the Arab-Israeli War of 1973, uh, led to an enormous increase in the price of oil, 400% increase in the price of oil. Then the Iranian Revolution, right, which led to the shutdown of Iranian oil production, led to another doubling in the price of oil. And there's a long, long set of, of, of discussions we could have about how all this happened. But since we only have about seven hours for this podcast, <laughs> right, I, 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 won't, I won't go into those. <laughs> We'll try to keep it just but, a notch under seven yeah, hours. Yeah, just, we'll, we'll try to keep this just under seven hours. Uh, Stay with us. Stay with us. Uh, but think about it. Oil in 1970 cost about $2 a barrel. Not a gallon, a barrel. And by 1980, it costs in the upper 30s. Uh, per barrel. So you're talking about a huge increase in the price of what was in many ways the most essential raw material commodity in the world, right? How are you going to run your cars? How are you going to run your airplanes? How are you going to run your factories? How are you going to run your cities without oil? And your military for that matter. And your military. So this refocuses strategic interest on this region. Because all of a sudden, these countries, which were basically poor before, are fabulously rich. And they can throw their weight around. Uh, and so the United States, both because of the Iranian Revolution and because of the increase in the price of oil, says, we, we've got to get more involved here. You know, before we had the Shah of Iran, the Saudis, they were our buddies, they were our allies. And the U.S. didn't have a large military presence in the region. Once the Shah's regime collapses, the United States starts concentrating on building up its military forces in the Gulf, because this is where the oil is. And, and we can see what happens when oil prices go up, it really harms the, mm -hmm. the U.S. economy, the world economy. Because that's kind of devastating at home, too. I mean, it, from oh, the 70s, Lord. you have stagflation, right? You stagflation, have... gas lines, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the the high, un, high inflation and high unemployment that you know, undermine popular support for Ford's presidency after Nixon's resignation, that undermined support for Carter's presidency. Uh, it it was bad, right? Inflation. This is this is when I was growing up, right? Yeah, I don't is, personally remember is, the seventies. You don't remember this. You don't remember this. But I was a teenager during those Ooh. years, and it, not only were the fashions horrible and the music questionable, <laughs> but it was damn expensive to fill up your car. Yeah. Uh, and, and we had over 10% unemployment and double-digit inflation in the United States. Which now is just hard to imagine, particularly given how we've had such low inflation for so long, 
And it seems like it just wouldn't be politically viable to keep a 10% unemployment rate. I mean, it, yeah, just, it, it wasn't. That's why, yeah, that's, that's, why, that's, why Ford, that's why Ford lost and Carter lost. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that kind of refocuses American interests, especially military interests. Yeah. Now, at the, now, now, this is augmented by the fact that Iran and Iraq start fighting a war in 1980. Okay. Right? And, and the U.S. gets drawn into that war because the Iranians and the Iraqis are hitting oil tankers. They're hitting shipping. And, and again, it's a complicated story, and we, we could go to like 10 hours if you wanted to. <laughs> but, but by the end of the 80s, the U.S. has deployed the largest naval force it's deployed abroad since Vietnam to uh, protect the tankers, the oil tankers of the, our allies, the Kuwaitis and the Saudis and the Emiratis, and, and to confront the Iranians. And we do, we, we fight a, a small naval war against Iran in, the, in 1987 and 88. And that culminates in a, 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 a little known episode for Americans, but, but an episode that is ingrained in the memories of all the Iranians. In, in uh, July of 1988, the United States shoots down a, a, a civilian airliner, an Iranian civilian airliner. It's flying across the Gulf. The commander of the U.S. Uh, naval vessel believed it was a, an Iranian uh, Air Force plane coming to attack his ship. And he shot it down and killed everybody on board. Wow. So uh, that actually marked the end of the Iran-Iraq war because the, the Iranian uh, leaders went to Khomeini, who was still calling the shots, and said, look, these Americans will do anything to keep us from winning this war. We have to, we have to stop. We have to accept a ceasefire. So the, the, the silver lining in that extremely dark cloud of killing all this, you know, over 300 civilians mm -hmm. in that uh, airliner was that it, uh, it did lead to the end of the Iran-Iraq. But the United States is now, you know, militarily engaged. And then two years later, Saddam invades Kuwait. And that's an interesting turning point, not only because the U.S. sends an enormous military force with full U.N. backing, with, uh, you know, enormous support from all sorts of, of other countries who send troops the Soviet Union supports, or this is the last days of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev. They support it. And the United States puts together this huge international coalition, sends 500,000 troops to the region, and ejects Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. This, this was, is the first Gulf War, right? This is the, this is the well, I would call the Iran-Iraq War the first Gulf War. But, okay. uh, yeah, Gulf War One. Uh, it was really... This is George H.W. Bush, who uh, our, our, our school is named after George H.W. Mm -hmm. Bush. And this was one of his great foreign policy. And it was really short, as I remember. I mean, it was kind of hundred, a... well, hundred hours on the ground. Uh, the bombing of Iraq went on for about a month before from mid-January to mid-February. And then we had a hundred hour ground war to eject the Iraqis from Kuwait. Uh, Again, very successful diplomatically, full UN support, very successful militarily. Uh, but this is a full-scale American military engagement in the Persian Gulf. And we never left, right? We never left after that because the, the countries like Kuwait and Saudi and the smaller Gulf states 
basically said, we need you Americans here. The Kuwaitis built us a base. The Bahrainis, we had a small naval base in Bahrain. Much, much bigger now. Uh, the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Omanis gave us bases. Saudis are a little hinkier about that uh, for, for all sorts of domestic reasons, but they were much more cooperative militarily. And was the idea, I mean, is it, are the forces there essentially as a buttress against uh, Iran's growing power or what's the, because there's the Cold War's over. So what's the, exactly. what do they want? Why do they, why did those, why did the Gulf states right. want us to stay? The end of the Cold War actually makes this more possible, right? Because if the United States had committed enormous military forces against Iraq at, during the height of the Cold War, when Iraq was a Soviet ally, you know, it would have been a, it would have been a global crisis, mm -hmm. could have been a nuclear crisis. Yeah. Uh, it was really the end of the Cold War that allowed the United States to be more aggressive militarily in this part of the world. Yeah. So why did the Kuwaitis and the Saudis and all? Because for them, it wasn't the Cold War. For them, it was Iraq invading. They didn't want that to happen again. So they were, they don't like Iran. They didn't like Saddam's Iraq. And these are relatively, even the Saudis who are a big country geographically, but a relatively small country in terms of population. They wanted an outsider. I mean, for years, for a hundred years, the British had been the protectors of these small states like Kuwait and Bahrain. These were, were British protectors, literally British protectors, not colonies. But Britain had signed treaties with the tribal sheikhs along the coast, basically saying, you continue to rule domestically and we will conduct your foreign and military policy. So, so for 100 years, these states have been protected by an outsider. We were just the new outsider. Got it. Uh, so you get the end of the Cold War. You get this huge success in the Gulf War. You get this enormous American military buildup in the region. Right. So that's where 9-11 comes into the story, right? It's easy to connect the dots backwards. Sure. Yeah. Right. From hindsight 2020. Right, right. <laughs> it's hard. It, it's hard to connect the dots forward, but it's really easy to connect them backwards. And, and the interesting thing about 9-11 is you can connect the dots backwards to what I think you can plausibly say were the two greatest successes of American foreign policy in that part of the world. The first is the Gulf War, mm -hmm. right? Which uh, ensconced this large American military force in the region. The second was the, the jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. Remember, the Soviets invade Afghanistan in 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Carter basically says, I've learned more about the Soviet Union in the last few days than in my whole life. And he begins the covert, not so covert, effort to support people fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. When the Reagan administration comes in in 1981, they redouble that effort. So the fight against the Soviets, the jihad, and that's what everybody called it, right? It was a holy war against the Soviets in Afghanistan basically was Pakistan as the base, Saudi Arabia as the financier, and America as the armed supplier and the superpower patron. And the three, those three countries, us, the Pakis, and the Saudis, fought that war 
supported the Afghan Mujahideen, people who fight jihad. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan compared them to the founding fathers of the United States. Right? So we supported an Islamically based fighting force that tried to get rid of the Soviets. So we were so 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 this is right. So this is the second thing that you can draw the lines back to, because this was an enormously popular cause throughout the Muslim world. Here was a, a foreign country invading a Muslim country, and they had support to try to fight against them. So all sorts of volunteers from around the Muslim world went to fight. And one of them was Osama bin Laden, right? So here's bin Laden, he fights, a little bit. He's basically a fundraiser for the for the jihad in Afghanistan, which is incredibly popular in Saudi Arabia. And toward the end, he goes and wants to fight. He fights some, right? Uh, he comes back to Saudi Arabia, right? He was one of the guys who went and fought the jihad and defeated the Soviet Union, right? And 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 then the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, you ask these guys, why did the Soviet Union collapse? Yeah. It was a miracle. Yeah. It was a miracle from God. Okay. Because, you know, this ragtag bunch of fighters with World War II style weapons defeated a superpower. Then bin Laden comes home to Saudi and he turns around and says, what, what does he see? 500,000 American troops mm -hmm. coming in. We know that he went to the, to the leaders of Saudi Arabia and he said, you don't need these Americans. My guys and I can take care of this. I took care of the Soviets. And the, the king and the defense minister basically said, thank you very much, but this is serious. You know, we need the Americans to fight this war. So bin Laden becomes alienated from the Saudi regime, right? And begins to see the American presence in the Middle East as the biggest problem confronting the Muslim world. After a couple of iterations, that leads to 9-11. Wow. <laughs> so I knew some of this, but some of this I hadn't kind of ever really pieced together, um, the timeline. So um, so there in the, in the 90s then, or in particular under Reagan, we were essentially providing military support for jihad. Oh, of course. We called these fighters Mujahideen, people who fight jihad. I came, I came across recently, I forget which Rocky movie it is now, but at the end of one of the Rocky movies, there is like a, there's a commentary to the Mujahideen about uh, thanking them for all their bravery and all the work that they've done, uh, which looks a little weird now in retrospect, given the current context of that's, international affairs. That's for sure. Okay, so that gets us to 9-11, and then 9-11 really uh, gets the attention of the Americans, gets the attention of the general public. It's this huge kind of spectacular, really, disaster. Uh, it's very visual. It gets our attention. This is one of my early – I was 14. Right. This is one of my earliest political memories. I actually remember sitting in middle school not uh, not knowing what the the – the Twin Towers were, but knowing that it was bad and it was in New York. Oh, boy. Was uh, it bad? We used to live in New York. Really? Yeah. Uh, and my wife worked uh, down around the Twin Towers. Uh, it was... It, so we weren't in New York at the time. We'd moved to Vermont by then. 
but it was, you know, it, it kind of hits home even more directly when you kind of live there and you experience it, you know, you'd, you'd see the Twin Towers, uh, you know, uh, driving into the city. Yeah, it was, it's, yeah, when you have those reference points for those disasters, I think it's, I've, I've noticed that with, uh, so we're filming this or recording this uh, sort of in the wake of Harvey. And, yeah. you know, I remember when Katrina hit New Orleans, you sort of knew how devastating it was, but I didn't have real reference points for New Orleans. When it's, when it's your neighboring city, when it's Houston, right. it's been, you know, you have a completely different response to it. Right. Okay. So that, I remember it jarring America. I mean, even as a teenager, politics have been different well, since I, then. I think it did more than jar us. I think it, it, it dislocated us. Yeah. In some real way. Yeah. And, and our politics really, which we won't go down that road too much, but our politics have just vastly changed since well, then. Well, yeah. I, I mean, the changes in our politics is, you know, the topic for another podcast, but, but an element of fear, you know, I think Americans, I, I say this all the time that, that people always tell you when you're traveling, be safe, travel safe. I don't remember people talking like that when I was growing right. up. Yeah. It, you didn't even think about that. Yeah. We were Americans. We, we didn't worry about our safety. Yeah. And now it's every, oh, travel safe, be safe. I think that's a product of 9-11 yeah. and the fear that that uh, created in, in, in the American public. And, and uh, you know, the, the growth of the national security state after 9-11 was, we had a pretty substantial national security state before 9-11, but the growth after 9-11 was considerable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so, it's so interesting. So how do you, how do you judge 9-11, right? What, the, the first task of the American political class was, how do we diagnose this problem? And I think we got the diagnosis completely wrong. Right. And, and I, I, this isn't just George W. Bush and the neocons. Go back and read Tom Friedman's columns in the time. Liberal internationalists, lots of Democrats came to the same conclusion that the neocons and the Bush administration did. And that conclusion was something this big, something this horrible, something this earth shattering had to come from a profound societal sickness in the Middle East. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we had to go and drain the swamp. That was before Trump started talking about draining the swamp in Washington. That was the phrase that you heard in Washington after 9-11. We have to drain the swamp. Now, I think that this was a complete misdiagnosis of why 9-11 happened. To me, 9-11 was a lucky punch. It was it was a bunch of, of fringe characters, right, hiding out in the in the in the mountains of Afghanistan, who utilized gaps in our aviation security system to land a lucky punch. It, if, if that had been the diagnosis of the American political class, our reaction to 9-11 would be much different. Yeah, we would have to take our shoes off at, at airports. Uh, yeah, there would have been a, a much more internal security focus. Yeah, we would have we would have emphasized international police cooperation to track these radical mm -hmm. jihadists, right? But because the American political class, not just the neocons and not just Bush, 
because the American political class said, no, this is a huge thing. It's got, it's got to be the product of a huge societal problem in the Middle East. What did we decide to do? We had to go in and change those people, right? We had to, we had to go in and, and change the way they govern themselves, right? In our more optimistic or, or, or perhaps cynically optimistic uh, moments, we said, we got to bring them democracy. And truthfully, I think George W. Bush really believed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could see his eyes you glisten. Can see in speech, yeah. His mm-hmm. eyes would glisten when he talked about bringing democracy to Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, why Iraq? I mean, Iraq had nothing to do with Afghanistan, nothing to do with 9 11. It was this diagnosis that we have to change the whole region, right? What's the, what was the cause of 9-11, they said? The cause of 9-11 was bad governance that drove people underground, that drove uh, political discontent underground into terrorist groups. And this bad governance also channeled it into anti-Americanism to deflect it from themselves. I just think that that was a misdiagnosis of why 9-11 but that, that was the shared diagnosis, I would say, of most of the political class in America. I mean, look at the votes in the House and the Senate to go to war with Iraq. The vote was in the fall of 2002, before congressional elections. Democrats, many, many more Democrats voted yes on that war than, than Democrats voted yes on the first Gulf War, which... <laughs> actually had UN backing, was actually a reaction to pretty blatant aggression by Saddam Hussein, which you could argue actually did have a a pretty core American national interest. We didn't want Saddam Hussein to control that much oil. I think that that tells you how widespread this misdiagnosis of the cause of 9-11 was. And in some ways, not to... uh get too far on a tangent, but in some ways, it, I've had conversations with several people who knew the political world before 9-11 and, and followed it closely and followed it closely after. And in some sense, I think the the dynamic that really got messed up is the, or the, the trade-offs between traditional notions of freedom and notions of national security kind of got out of whack, really. And the, the whole, to your point, I mean, I, I can, I don't, really remember, but I, I teach the Iraq war case study in the foundations class at the Bush school. And you can just see, I mean, it was almost like a hysteria, right? I mean, everyone seemed to have bought into this. Everything's falling down. We've got to find a way to be safe again. We are willing to trade any other sets of values away to try to get back to some level of perceived safety. I mean, the, and in some ways the, that feels like that was the terrorist same in lots of ways was to make us afraid. Right. And, um, and, and we made those trade-offs in domestic politics. We made it as, in things as simple as the, the horrible hassles of getting through an airport now. I, frankly, I don't feel any safer taking my shoes off, yeah. uh, getting on, uh, get, going through security in an airport. We, we, made, we, we, we made sacrifices in terms of civil liberties. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them were necessary. My guess is that lots of them weren't. And then we, we engaged in this uh, just really aggressive foreign policy that has destabilized the Middle East. And, and you know, I, I, I think that if it, I, I was old enough at that time to be in the business. Mm-hmm. 
And so I was looking at this Iraq war going, oh my God, they're actually going to do this. <laughs> they're actually going to go to war with Iraq. I didn't mind going to war with Afghanistan. I thought that had to be done, uh, not just uh, for security purposes, but also uh, for justice. Mm -hmm. Because the attack on, on the United States on 9-11 was unjustified and uh, an egregious uh, assault on, on, on civilians in the United States. Uh, and, and that demanded a response. And when the Taliban government in Afghanistan would not turn over bin Laden and eject al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, I was 100% in favor of that war. We can argue about how it was fought and all those things, but sure. I thought that was a just war and a necessary war. But when I when it when it hit me that oh my lord, they're gonna they're gonna invade Iraq. I talked as much as I could against it. I I I said what's going on here. Parts of our political system worked well. There were excellent hearings by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, bipartisan. Richard Lugar. And Joe Biden were the ranking members. I forget who, who uh, I forget whether the Republicans or the Democrats had control of the Senate. So I forget who was the chair and who was the vice chair. Mm -hmm. But Luger and Biden ran a great series of hearings in, in, in 2002 about the, the possible consequences of this war. And they had really good people. And they said, look, this is going to be really problematic what you want to do. But nobody was in a mood to listen. Yeah. Well, so um, we could probably completely derail on this topic about yeah. the mood, and, but let, let's shift a little bit to, so you mentioned that um, you felt like sort of following 9-11, the foreign policy got more aggressive and more destabilizing. So let's talk me about some of the specifics of that from then up to, because what I really want to get to is an understanding of what did, what did George W. do in this region during that time and kind of what was Obama's, you know, Obama uh, campaigned on sort of anti-interventionism, right. getting out of Afghanistan, finishing up Iraq. I mean, he campaigned on these issues and then wasn't really able to remove military forces right. from those regions. And I think that will give us some good clues as to, in particular, your article talking about why and how Trump has been different or President Trump has been different or not different in response, kind of following up the structural setup post 9-11. So sure. set the stage there for sure. us. So Iraq turned into a disaster. Right. And I think uh, across the political spectrum in the United States, it was basically acknowledged that this was a really bad. We made a really bad decision. Now, you know, the argument is, was it a good decision and we made a hash of it once we got in? Or was there no way that this could have been done well? I don't I, I personally am on the second position. I don't think there's any way you could do that uh, military occupation of Iraq well. But in any event, I think that by the end of that administration, by the end of the W administration, it had generally be been agreed by this political class that moved like lemmings to favor the war that this was a bad idea, right? So President Bush campaigned on, uh, I'm sorry, President Obama campaigned on, uh, we're getting out, right? But it was interesting the way he did it, right? Because he's a Democrat. He doesn't want to be accused of being soft. Mm -hmm. So he said, we're getting out of Iraq, but Afghanistan's the good war. And we're going to double down in Afghanistan because that's where bin Laden is. That's where 9-11 right. was plotted, right? And we're going we're gonna to double down in Afghanistan. And he did. Remember, the surge in Afghanistan that came at the beginning of the Obama administration was went up to 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. 
didn't do any good at all. So what 4,000 troops from Trump is going to do is beyond my imagination that they have any thought that this is going to change yeah. things in Afghanistan. But, the, but President Obama came in really thinking that he wanted to, to pivot to Asia, which was another one of the phrases from that campaign, mm -hmm. and, 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 and reduce the American commitment in the Middle East. He did it in Iraq. Actually, George W. started that. Uh, he agreed to the timetable for withdrawal. That's right. Obama just carried it out. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's complicated. There's some talk, oh, the Iraqis will let us keep some troops. Oh, they won't. To keep it under seven hours, we'll, <laughs> we'll skip that one, right? Uh, so Obama really wanted to, to move away from the Middle East. I think the Afghan thing was more political, right? I, I don't want to be accused of being weak, so I'm going to double down in Afghanistan. But Iraq is the real problem we're going to get out. And there wasn't as negative feeling towards Afghanistan. No, I mean, there was, was yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it wasn't as much of a cock up as Iraq turned out mm -hmm. to be. Although I think it wasn't a success. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, we get dragged back in. It's like the Godfather part three, <laughs> I think, right? You know, and Michael Corleone says, I'm trying to get out. They keep dragging me back in. The Arab Spring starts. And, and you know, Optimistic and somewhat naive Americans, including those in government, say, oh, this is it. This is where democracy will actually spread in the in the Arab world. This is their 1989, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the wall coming down, Eastern Europe and all the democracies. Well, no, not really. It doesn't play out that way. And Libya, you know, looks like it's going to become a bloodbath. So what do we do? We send in troops. Uh, we, we, we send in special forces with the Brits and the French. We bomb Gaddafi and we change the government in Libya. And then we leave, right? Syria becomes a civil war, right? And we don't really get involved in, in, in Syria. And so what do we have? We have Iraq where we went in, overthrew the government, fought a long war with lots of troops, and it's a mess. And Libya where we helped to overthrow the government. We did overthrow the government. It wouldn't have happened without our intervention. And then we leave and it's a mess. And then Syria, which has a civil war and we don't get involved and it's a mess. Yeah. So kind of whatever you do, it's a mess. Damned if you do right. and damned if you don't. Right. Yeah. But out of the Syrian civil war comes ISIS, which then goes back into Iraq. And that brings American troops back into Iraq under the Obama administration, mm -hmm. right? Not as many as the Bush administration in the thousands, not the tens of thousands. But, you know, we're bombing Iraq every day. Uh, we have thousands of American troops in Iraq and in Syria coordinating the fight against ISIS. So Obama, who comes into office wanting to get out, is pretty involved in the Middle East when he leaves. And then we have the next election. And Donald Trump campaigns, much as Barack Obama did, on we got to get out of the Middle East. This is a mess. This is a quagmire. Yeah, on that particular piece, I mean, it seems like it was just repeating itself all over again. I mean, yeah. the same kind of, my, not the exact same, but the idea sort of let's remove from the Middle East what's going on there. There were also some 
wasn't always consistent, right? And there was comments about carpet bombing and some other oh, things right, going right, on. Right. But in general, it was, no, we don't need to be there. That's not right. in America's interest to be there. We need to... We're going to kill all the terrorists, but we're not going to get involved. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And on the specifics, uh, Donald Trump, uh, as a private citizen and as a candidate, was very clear. He, he tweeted, which, of course, is the, 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 the opus of his political thought, is his tweets. So... Uh, you know, he tweeted that, that President Obama shouldn't get involved in Syria. That's right. He tweeted that, uh, that Afghanistan was a disaster. We should get out, rebuild America, right? This was not a guy who was George W. Bush gung-ho to go in and change the Middle East. He okay. talked about, you know, bombing the terrorists and killing all the terrorists. But I think if you could credit him with strategic thought on foreign policy, he didn't want strategically to be that involved in the Middle East. And was and shared and his closest advisors sort of shared that same or some of them shared the same. Opinion. Some of them yeah. did. Like Bannon, some, for example. Yeah, Bannon certainly. I mean Flynn, he was Mr. Kill All the Muslims. Yeah, I mean right. yeah. he wanted to be involved and fight jihad and this was the huge threat to America. Right. Yeah. And, and Bannon was more what are we, you know, what are we doing there? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, who, who knows? I mean, we can, we can, I'm sure it's another podcast <laughs> to delve into the strategic thought of Donald Trump. Oh, but, goodness. Yeah, that would yeah. be at least one podcast. Right. Um, okay. So, all right. I, I think we've kind of set the stage now and kind of done a, a really a nice job. I think you've done here of laying out all the way back to World War II. For, for someone who doesn't have a, not, a lot of knowledge about um, why we're involved in the Middle East. And, we're, people, and we're only into hour five. I know, right? that's right. Yeah. We're doing good. Yeah. So I want to shift now to some of the the, the work you've done recently. And so, and I'm going to also forget. So it's H. Diplo. H. Right? Diplo. Yeah, just one, one uh, thought on that. H. Diplo was founded years and years ago by, by diplomatic historians as it's kind of at the beginning of the internet. It's kind of a wiki where oh, okay. people could put up stuff, yeah. right? And 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 you could kind of run ideas by people and 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 put up drafts of papers and all. It's now become much more formal. It's curated and moderated and edited, and and they have various elements to the H Diplo site. And one of them is the uh, the International Security uh, Studies uh, Forum. Studies Forum that that I did this little piece for about Trump in the Middle East on. So H. Diplo is a great source. Uh, if you're interested in foreign policy stuff, check it out. And we'll get up, uh, I'll definitely get up the link to your article. And then if there's some other sort of top tier articles you think that would be useful related to this, if you want to send them to me, I'll post those as well. And those will be available on the blog uh, along with this podcast. Um, so this, this piece that you've posted, or this piece, now I've gotten my head into social media. This piece <laughs> that you've written, uh, it's called The Trump Administration and the Middle East. And last time I tried to recap an, uh, a journal article of David's, I actually got it wrong. So feel free <laughs> if I misrepresent your article right. to correct me. But as I see it, it has a, a, a couple of main points that I'd like to discuss. I think there's about three. And, and the first is that in some pretty important ways, the Trump administration has followed the same template as the Obama administration. Um, and so we can talk maybe a little bit about that. The second is that there does seem to be some significant differences, which I spent some time on Iran in particular, because one of the 
points you make is that that might be one place where there are some differences. And then if we can sneak it in with the time we have left, um, I want to talk a little bit about the stylistic differences because that's sort of what you end the article with. And I think there are, even though if some of the structural pieces moving forward, uh, we're going to talk about some of those are similar and some of those are different, but the stylistic approaches are played out on the world stage. And so that probably has some impact as well. But let's start with, uh, which is sort of where you start the article, um, and what important ways is the Trump administration basically a continuation of some of the Obama administration policies in the Middle East in particular? Right. So I, I do think that Trump and Obama both came into office with the same fundamental feeling about the Middle East, which is we should be less involved in this place. So if you if you listen to Trump rhetoric, during the, the campaign, you would think, though, that we were going to have a huge change in Middle East policy. We were going to move the American embassy to Jerusalem to make pro-Israeli forces happy. We were going to rip up the Iran nuclear deal, which was one of the, the pride and joys of Obama administration foreign policy. Uh, we were going to carpet bomb the, 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 the terrorists throughout the region. Uh, surprisingly, though, there was very little change. Uh, the Trump administration didn't rip up the nuclear agreement, at least yet. I mean, it certified twice up till today that Iran was still complying with the nuclear agreement. I was one thing I saw. I did, I did not know that. I saw that as I was reviewing the article. I couldn't believe, given the, given the rhetoric, that it has been certified twice while it's he's been, been certified. Office. You know why it's been certified? Because the experts in the U.S. government have basically reported that Iran is abiding by what it agreed to do. So when, when uh, President Trump comes in, what does he do? He basically adopts the decades-long American commitment to the peace process. Oh, this is going to be the ultimate deal. This is so important. I'm going to appoint my son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to take care of this. And we know, I mean, he, he, he thinks in terms of family. If he mm -hmm. appoints Jared to something, it must be important. Mm -hmm. And... and and so he basically just repeats the process that other administrations that are coming in. We're so smart. We're so good. We'll be able to solve this. Obama did the same thing. Bush had a, not later in his administration, almost every American president's made a try at this, right? So Trump is no different than any other American president on this. And, and you know, he'll fail, which makes him no different than most American presidents. Uh, a. B. Sure, he's bombing ISIS, but so is President Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trump administration has increased drone attacks on ISIS and Al-Qaeda targets. But in essence, the policy is the same. So one thing here might be useful to note. I'm not sure if the listeners will know this, but the, the drone attacks in particular were quite um, common under the Obama administration as well. It was just, the favorite. It was the favorite military tactic of the Obama administration was drone strikes because you could go into Yemen, to Pakistan, to Afghanistan. You could go to all sorts of places, Somalia, not even put an American pilot at risk and attack targets. The Obama administration loved and, and you know, the technology developed in the Obama yeah. administration. Yeah. The Obama administration loved drone attacks. The Trump administration loves them more. 
So, but but that's that's a difference in kind, not a difference in strategy. Sure. Right. So, President Trump strikes the Syrian government when they use chemical weapons. But there's no follow up. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's not that. Obama didn't. He walked back when the Syrians used chemical weapons during his presidency. He didn't follow through with with his threats, although he got an agreement to at least reduce the Syrian chemical weapons capability. Obviously not eliminate it because they used them used again. Them again. Mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of the famous red line. This is the red line. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so Trump and, 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 and we see this in Afghanistan with the with the re, the announcement of the Afghan policy. Right? It's basically just adding 4000 troops to what Obama had done before. So we're not seeing much difference. The one place where the rhetoric is really different is Iran. And maybe we will see differences there. Maybe the, the Trump administration will withdraw from the nuclear agreement. Maybe we will have a more conf I, I think we're, we're seeing signs of a more confrontational policy toward Iran. But as of yet, there hasn't been a major shift. And uh, why is that? Why is it that Obama comes in very popular? He has a, you know, uh, wins all over the country and then has a um, majority in the House and the Senate. So you have all three, you know, houses that you have, well, you have the you have the House of Representatives and you have the Senate and you have the presidency. And then a Republican contender comes along saying the same types of things also has control of the Senate Second and the Congress. Right. And when it comes down to it, they end up doing more of the same. Why is that? Well, I think that there's a, a political imperative here, which is no American president wants to be blamed for losing a war. And so we have a policy in Afghanistan, I think, that's more about not losing than winning. And think about the people around President Trump. He appointed a lot of military officers to important foreign policy positions. Chief of staff now. And, and, and his chief of staff now, General Kelly. General Kelly, General Mattis uh, at, at defense, mm -hmm. and General McMaster, who is his national security advisor, all fought in Afghanistan all fought in Iraq. I think they all fought in Iraq. I know they all fought in Afghanistan. They have personally and institutionally as the United States military, enormous sunk costs in Afghanistan. And we know the psychological uh, uh, kind of syndromes that kick in over sunk costs, mm -hmm. right? It might be rational to just say, this is a money loser, we're out of here. Yep. But if you have sunk your costs in there, it's really difficult to walk away. Particularly human lives. I mean, exactly. People they know. And, they are you know. troops, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we saw the same thing in Vietnam. Just a few more troops and we'll have victory, right? So I think the combination of the political imperative, you don't want to be the American president to quote unquote lose a war, with this organizational element of having so many military people in such high positions uh, in terms of your foreign policy. Uh, Trump himself said my, when he gave the Afghan speech, my instincts were to get out. But it's really different when you're sitting in the Oval Office. It's different because he has all these generals telling him, here's what's going to happen if we leave. Now, do the when we started this story, it was uh, we talked about missionaries, essentially. We talked about business folks and then we talked about the Holocaust. And so 
is is part of it still lingering business interests as well? I mean, does it really disrupt this region from a financial standpoint if we just withdraw? I mean, is part of it the military and and that makes sense to me, but is part of it also that these financial interests remain and so it's still in some capacity uh, for in sort of entrenched interests, they want us there. I think that the business interests in the Middle East have changed dramatically. One of the things that happened in the 70s and 80s is that all those American oil interests in the region were nationalized. So before Exxon and Mobil, they used to be two different companies. Uh, and, 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 now you're really dating yourself. Yeah. I know, yeah, no joke. I'm an old man. Uh, but Exxon and Mobil and, and, and Chevron, they owned the oil in that part of the world with BP and Shell, right? They owned it. It was theirs. And they paid these governments a tax to mm -hmm. exploit it. But in the 70s and 80s, all of these governments in the Middle East nationalized the oil. So Exxon and Mobil and Shell and BP and Chevron basically become purchasers, not owners. Interesting. And service providers. So do they have enormous interests in this area? Of course they do. Not in the same kind of way. But not in the, the same profits. kind of way. And, and so I think that the business imperative has kind of been reduced. It's not we're protecting American business which owns this oil. No. Right? We're protecting, we think we're protecting access to oil and the free flow of oil, right? But our military commitment has become so substantial in that part of the world that the sunk cost argument sets in. The 9-11 argument, right? This is where 9-11 came from. We have to be there. We have to be able to, 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 to strike at the terrorists. And our commitment to Israel has, I think, shifted politically. But it's still extremely strong, right? I mean, evangelical and fundamentalist Christians in the United States really have adopted Israel as a very important part of their political agenda. That wasn't the case back in the 40s and 50s, but it is certainly the case now, mm -hmm. right? Back in the day when, when I started out in the business, when I was you know, starting to learn about politics, it was the Democrats that were the pro-Israeli party because American Jews overwhelmingly tended to be Democratic. And the Republicans were, eh, you know, not so much. They were the oil company party, and so they were more pro-Arab. Not anymore, right? Yeah. As fundamentalist and evangelical Christians in the United States become committed to Israel and also committed to a, a kind of a, a view of Israel that's consistent with the Likud party and the right wing in Israel, right? No territorial compromise, all that kind of thing. Uh, and they become a core element of the Republican mm -hmm. base. It's the Republicans who become, if anything, more pro-Israeli, quote unquote, than the Democrats, but you know, not by much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I, the, the political basis of a pro-Israeli stance in American politics has shifted somewhat. But it's still it's consistent. I I would say from those from the late forties that there's a strong American domestic political constituency that wants the United States to have a close relationship with Israel and be involved in Arab-Israeli affairs. Yeah, it's it's interesting, sort of as a millennial, right, and sort of just learning about these things from nine post nine eleven forward. It's been interesting to 
just observe as I begin to have develop my own understanding of international politics um, that there's such ardent support for particularly Netanyahu. I mean, it's just it's interesting that, that there you know there are some reasons to be supportive, but there are also some reasons to be worried. I think mm-hmm. from issues of corruption and accountability and democracy. I mean, there, there are reasons to at least question what's going on under a Netanyahu rule. And it's interesting to me that it's become such a polarized, either you're for Israel completely and for the current government, or you're against Israel and against an Israeli state. And it's, it's just bizarre to me. Right. You can have extremely sophisticated discussions of this in the American Jewish community, where there are numerous positions and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with Netanyahu. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea of permanent Israeli control of the West Bank and and what does that mean for the Jewish nature of the state, right? The Israelis, I think, can can be any two of the following three things, but not all three, right? They can be a Jewish state, they can be a democratic state, they can hold on to the West Bank, which contains millions of Palestinians, Mm -hmm. right? You can be a Jewish state and hold on to the West Bank, but your democratic credentials start being questioned. And that's what's happening more in Europe than in the United States, right? You can be a Jewish state, right, and a democracy, but can you hold on to the West Bank? If you're going to give those people voting rights, you're going to make them citizens, right? Israel, you can can be a democratic state and hold on to the West Bank, but then you really do become a Biden state right mm-hmm. you, you you cease to be a Jewish state uh, in, in 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 any kind of, of purely demographic sense yeah so this kind of debate is part and parcel of the American Jewish community I don't see it as much in the in Christian fundamentalist and evangelical communities who are much more kind of Israel should hold on to the land because that's the land that God gave mm-hmm. it's very biblical mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, but it's troubling. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, American policy has been since the 1967 war when Israel acquired the West Bank and Gaza uh, and the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula, which they gave back to Egypt as part of the peace treaty with Sadat. American policy since 1967 has been the Israelis should give up that territory in exchange for comprehensive peace agreements. Uh, and and I think that that best serves American interests and it best serves the interests of regional stability. But uh, that is something that has been increasingly challenged, I think, in the American political system. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't, I've not had nuanced conversation with Jewish Americans um, about the issue. I mean, I, I grew up in a uh, sort of a Protestant Southern Baptist home yeah. um, and uh, in, a, in the Southern Baptist community, and it was it, the conversations were very much of the sort of biblical nature. It's like this is their, this is the Jewish people's land. God gave it to them. Any other conversations are just right. a non-starters. And right. so, um, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's just interesting in that way. So we talked a little bit about the ways in which the Trump administration might be different from the Obama administration and how they treat Iran. And most of that's based on rhetoric. So just give me a brief recap on um, the well, the ways in which the rhetoric has been different. I mean, right. pulling out of the nuclear deal is part that I'm sure people have heard about, but just a couple points on that. And then I want to shift to um, a little bit of the, the stylistic differences and 
hopefully not uh, take too much time, more time out of your day. No, that, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into the seventh hour. <laughs> so, uh, in many ways, I think Obama was the outlier here, not Trump. Right since the Iranian Revolution, uh, hostility toward Iran and Iranian hostility toward us has been a consistent element of politics. Uh, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine how much Iran was public enemy number one for America during the hostage crisis, uh, which I grew up with. It, it's, but I think consistently over time. American presidents have seen Iran as an enemy, and Iranians have the Iranian regime has consistently seen the United States as an enemy. There, there were efforts to reach out. George H. W. Bush tried. Uh, Bill Clinton, toward the end of his administration, tried. Uh, these didn't work. There were reach outs from the Iranian side occasionally that didn't work. Uh, President Obama is the first American president since the Iranian Revolution to actually engage directly with the Iranians and, and, and achieve some kind of political agreement. This was the nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, he's the outlier. And although people in the Obama administration were, were very modest about what they thought this would lead to. I think the president himself thought that if you could make the make the deal with the Iranian government to limit the nuclear program, then that would strengthen the quote unquote moderates in Iran. And that over time you would get a more moderate Iranian foreign policy in the region and you could have a rapprochement with the United States. Yeah. Uh, of course, half the American political system rejected that notion. And, and President Trump uh, campaigned vigorously against the Iranian deal. He called it the worst deal in history. I mean, I think it was one of seven deals that he called the worst NAFTA deal in history. Yeah. NAFTA, <laughs> the TPP, everything. Paris right? Accords. Paris Accords. Uh, yeah, any deal that he didn't like was the worst deal in history. Uh, and he used, he used rather crude rhetoric about the Iranians, and the Iranians answered in kind. Sure. Uh, you know, they have domestic politics, too, and there are people there who didn't like the nuclear deal either. That's right. Uh, uh, so I, I think that that was the kind of setting the stage for the new administration. In many ways, the Trump administration is a reversion to pre-Obama of just seeing Iran as an enemy. Right. Remember, uh, George W. Bush included Iran in the axis of evil after 9-11. Bill Clinton's policy in the Gulf region was called dual containment. We were going to contain Iraq, which had you know, just invaded Kuwait and fought this war over, but we were also going to contain Iran. So in, in many ways, I think President Trump is a reversion to that, and President Obama is probably the outlier. So uh, let's move to some of the stylistic differences, and this is what you talk about uh, kind of at the end of your piece. And so while some of the policies have continued, and we've sort of alluded to uh, uh, President by tweeting, and yeah. I've talked, we also just now alluded to how several international deals were referred to as the worst deals ever. And so this is a little bit of a break um, from the approach that Obama had. Obama had a little bit more of um, sort of what we can, I think what we would consider traditional statesmanship 
um, and playing some of those similar rules. And Obama, I mean, excuse me, Trump plays by different rules when it comes yeah. to his communication and stylistic. So maybe just recap a little bit of you highlight some in your article about the ways in which this style, while the some of the main policies are moving forward, this style might have some consequences for the international arena. Right. I, I think that President Trump underestimates how important everything an American president says and does is regarding the Middle East. I mean, he's he's looked to as the most important policymaker in the world. And and people in the Middle East try to anticipate and judge and and shift and try to craft his view of things in an effort to advance their interests. Uh, I mean, we know that the Saudis and the Emiratis from the, from the election established a back channel to the Trump administration through Jared Kushner. I mean, these are family regimes and, you know, they kind of saw in the Trump administration a kindred spirit, a family regime. You know, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you deal with this guy? Talk to his son-in-law. Yeah. And, and, I think that the, the Trump administration kind of unbeknownst was giving signals that maybe it, it, it didn't intend, right? So the Saudis and the Emiratis, uh, you know, escalated crisis with Qatar. It's not a, that big a deal for most Americans, but it, it complicates American foreign policy in the region. I think it's largely because they thought they had Trump's support for this. The whole thing was, and he bizarre. tweeted about yeah. it and all. As that was fall, as that was, which, that was a bizarre event. As it was, yeah. Coming. Some of it turns out to just not be based on actual information. Exactly. It was weird. all, yeah. It was, it was really talking weird. about fake news. Yeah. Right? But the president basically undercut the Secretary of State, who mm -hmm. kind of steps in and goes, "Oh, well, we got to settle this down. These are all our allies." Blah blah blah. And the president tweets, "Ah, the Saudis are doing the right thing. You know, the Qataris are bad." It's not. I think he underestimates how important everything he says. When general two presidents amazing. try to have a consistent uh, administrations have to try to have a consistent approach, where you you want to send signals of what so your allies and your enemies will know what to expect. I mean, that right. level of certainty is better right. than uncertainty. Exactly. Um, which is what we sort of wrestle with a little bit with, say. Uh, North Korea, there's so much uncertainty right. on how they're going to respond. One, one of the things that most presidents try to do is at least present a um, consistent front but from their administration on the way in which they're going to approach things. And so this, from a decision-making standpoint, raises the level of uncertainty both with our allies and our enemies, right. which seems like it can be a matchstick for conflict. Right. And I, I think that this is where President Trump's own personal sense of how you negotiate kind of runs into problems at the international level. I think he really values uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, I think he thinks that gives him an advantage. But I also think that at the international level, it can, as you say, create problems. Uh, and we haven't paid a heavy price for that yet in the Middle East. But particularly when we're dealing with Iran, and this whole issue of, of perhaps withdrawing from the nuclear agreement, I think uncertainty can lead to really bad results. And I'm not sure that uh, the president appreciates that. I think, I think General Mattis and, and Secretary Tillerson and General McMaster appreciate that. But I don't know if the president does. I think that's a, a, a good question. Um,
Okay, we got we passed the hour mark by about ten minutes. So, in interest of our, our of your time and not keeping our listeners too long, I want to kind of wrap this down with we've sort of laid out uh, a ten thousand foot view, or maybe even just a, a five thousand foot view of the history of the Middle East from World War II until now. Talked a little bit about. Um, we didn't the, start with the advent of Islam. Yeah, that's right. We didn't go back quite that far. And then we talked about how the Bush administration took on a more aggressive policy in some ways, uh, but that there was this sense of, um, the only way I know to describe it is this sense of fear uh, following 9-11, in which the general public has been willing to sort of shift their views about thinking about the international stage and national security and and the ways in which Obama was a continuation of that and and the ways in which Obama um, was a little bit different, Iran in particular. And then we've talked a little bit about how Trump has been a continuation of some of those policies, in part because of sunk costs and the sort of um, people who have been involved in these conflicts, um, and, but how he might be returning back to what has been a traditional approach to Iran since at least the Iranian Revolution. So I guess my sort of final question with you to you is, what should we expect moving forward? I mean, it seems like some of these entrenched American interests continue to dominate, even when a president comes in and says, no, we don't want to deal with this region. We don't want war. Um, it seems like the sunk costs keep the keep the policy about the same with some tinkering. Um, and so do you expect, uh, and I know this is a difficult question, but do you expect the Trump administration to continue to have some of these policies or do you expect at some point for them to do this 180 and then what does that mean moving forward for the next president mm-hmm. um, are these interests just really dominating the structure so much that it doesn't seem likely that we'll have a, a depart departure from this and I know asking a um, uh, an academic at these days to predict the future um, is oh, just I'm, I'm happy to predict the future <laughs> I, I, all I, right I, then. I don't have any problem with that at all you know because Nobody ever remembers your wrong predictions. You know? <laughs> exactly. You only just, remember your right ones. That's right. So, so I'll, I'll throw out a bunch of them. Uh, look, I think that that we've already seen in Afghanistan that this is a continuation of previous policies. We've already seen on the Arab-Israeli front that this is a continuation of previous policies. We've already seen in terms of of the, the, the campaign against ISIS that this is a continuation of previous policies. Part of that, as I said, is the sunk cost dynamic. And part of it is the, the, the political necessities of an American president doesn't want ISIS to beat him, doesn't want Al Qaeda to beat him, doesn't want the Taliban to beat him, right? So we'll fight, we'll, we'll fight not to lose, right? I think the place that we are going to see a shift is Iran. And I think that this will just increase the, the, the imperatives to, to militarize American foreign policy, right? Because if you're going to confront Iran, which is the dominant player in Lebanon, the dominant player in Syria, the dominant player in Iraq, has a lot of cards to play in Yemen, has cards to play in Afghanistan, and uh, confronts us in some ways on the waters of the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea, I think that what you're talking about is an increased military focus of policy. I mean, one of the nice things I liked about Obama's outreach to Iran is it was foregrounding diplomacy and seeing if we could find some some kind of common, if not a common interest, at least a common position that that the Iranians valued, that we valued, that the Europeans valued. Uh, 
I think that we're going to go into a more confrontational mode. And when you confront, it's the military that steps up. And um, what, sorry, I said that was the last question. I have one, one final one, which is given the predictions. So if you were making these decisions, yeah. and so part of the idea with this podcast is to give uh, citizens uh, an idea of what people who know a lot about this would advocate maybe not advocate, but push for if they were, if they could make the decision. So last, last episode was on medical cannabis legislation with David Bradford science on the health benefits are, are pretty well established. The financial savings are pretty well established from his research. And so I, I think one clear takeaway from that podcast was it's kind of essentially silly at this point that we don't have medical cannabis legislation available in all 50 States. I would say billions of dollars saved about 2,000 lives a year. And so I know the Middle East, uh, people sort of um, in the U.S. talk about it as this quagmire that there's no way to improve upon. And I have a sense that that's just not true, that there are a lot of barriers to progress, but there are better strategies and worse strategies. And so if you were going to give the audience something to push for as citizens in the Middle East, what, what would be your recommendation? Well, I think that the impulse of both President Obama and President Trump coming into office was right. We shouldn't be as involved in the Middle East as we are. Uh, I'm not sure that we're any safer because we have 12,000 to 16,000 troops in Afghanistan than we would if we had none. Uh, we might not like the results, uh, but I'm not sure that we're safer because of that. Uh, I, I, I have one big criticism of the uh, of kind of the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, and one big criticism of the Obama administration. I think that the, the W. Bush administration over-militarized the American policy in the Middle East in an effort to try to not just affect the regional balance of power, but change the way these countries govern themselves domestically, change their domestic politics. The Obama administration came in and didn't want to play that military role. But they still wanted to change the way these people govern themselves domestically. That was the whole Libya intervention. I think we have to stop worrying about how these people govern themselves domestically. And that's a hard thing for Americans to back away from, because we've got to stop all this talk about democracy. We just have to let them run their own show. They treat their women badly. That's their business. They're not democratic. That's their business. What's our business is if they support groups that are plotting to attack the United States. I would have a much more minimalist definition of, of, of where we should intervene and for what purposes. Okay. All right. Well, um, in closing, uh, Greg, if you have any, um, hopefully the listeners find this quite a riveting hour and 20 minutes now. If they are still listening. If they are still listening. Um, but do you have any uh, ways in which if listeners found this conversation interesting, they have follow, like some type of question or want to follow along with your work, what are some ways in which they could interact with you? So I do have a website, www.gregorygauze.com, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-G-A-U-S-E, all just one okay. string, string those letters together. Uh, and I post... Uh, I post the, my writings up there, links to it. I post media stuff that I do. So if people want to look at my stuff, they can go there. Uh, I think that there are a number of places that cover the Middle East really well. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that you can go to the standard foreign policy websites, foreignpolicy.com, foreignaffairs.com. 
I think they do good stuff on the Middle East. Uh, I think that that a very good kind of more leftist take on the Middle East, and I don't always agree with it, but but they're good on the ground scholars. You can find at the Middle East Research and Information Project, MERIP, M-E-R-I-P. And I think their website is merip.com. Uh, I, would, I would urge people to, to look at that. I think that the coverage that the New York Times and the Washington Post do of the Middle East and the Wall Street Journal, not necessarily the opinion page all the time, but the news coverage is really good. You can, you can really follow the Middle East through the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. If you're interested in this stuff, get a, get a newspaper, pay for your, you know, support journalism, pay for that journalism. online subscription. Uh, and, and I think that, that those are really good day-to-day -day sources. Uh, so we'll get um, the links to all the places that, uh, all the websites Greg has mentioned. I would add to that, I personally, the, the uh, resources I go other than to Greg and my colleagues in the International Affairs Department is uh, PBS has Frontline and yeah. Frontline specials I think are, are quite good. They're I use those good. in my classroom. Very good. Uh, Losing Iraq um, has our former Dean Ryan Crocker, who I will be speaking to for the next episode. Um, and he does a, a fantastic job of laying out the pieces in kind of blunt language often. Uh, but the fr Frontline has several specials that I think are quite good. Uh, Vice as well specials that I'm a big fan of and so you can find some stuff there uh, uh, in the Middle East as well um, so I would recommend those sources also I see my, my recommendations are text and yours are video it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it a generation it might be a generation gap it's a generational thing. Thing. Greg I must say knew what a podcast was when I asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast <laughs> okay well thanks so much for sticking with us uh, through this long conversation uh, we thought it was really important to lay out plenty of context. I know when I uh, joined a department with International Affairs Department, I knew little to nothing about uh, International Affairs, even while having a PhD in public administration. So I thought the context was really important to discuss these issues. We'll rehash some of this uh, next time with Ryan. But I wanted to say thanks to Greg. Um, maybe moving forward, we'll have uh, more opportunities to have him on the podcast. It's always a treat to talk to Greg about these things. He's so much more informative on these or informed on these issues than I am that I learn something every time. So I hope you've learned something as well. We'll get the links up on the website and uh, thanks again, Greg. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will be posting the next episode in about two weeks. You can access episodes from a number of different sources, including iTunes podcast, SoundCloud, or our YouTube channel, Public Problems. Links to the episodes will also be posted in our Facebook group, which is called Public Problems, on my website at justinbullock.org, where you can also find a corresponding blog post that will contain all the references and additional information from the interview, and will tweet out a link to the episode from our Twitter handle, which is at Public Problems with an underscore at the end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.